the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. This week, you'll hear a Q&A with Raoul Peck, director of the new documentary, I Am Not Your Negro, which traces the history of race relations in America through the words of author and social critic James Baldwin. After that, we're sharing an excerpt from Film Comment's latest dispatch from the Sundance Film Festival, which features a round table of critics discussing the best and worst of the early days of the festival. James Baldwin's unfinished manuscript, Remember This House, forms the basis for I Am Not Your Negro, the new documentary by Raoul Peck. Narrated by Samuel L. Jackson, the film offers a powerful and unflinching retelling of the story of race in America. The film is nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature, and it begins its official theatrical run here at the Film Society on February 3rd, with Peck returning for additional Q&As during the opening weekend. Let's go now to the Q&A from the 54th New York Film Festival, where the film screened in the Spotlight on Documentary section. I think that reaction speaks for itself. Um, we uh, unfortunately do not have a lot of time for a Q&A, but I'll make sure to leave uh, time for some audience questions because I know Raul wants to hear um, feedback from you. Uh, let me just ask you um, a couple of things before we open it up. Uh, maybe you could start by talking about your your relationship to Baldwin's work, what he, what he has meant to you uh, when you discovered his writing. Well, I, I think that a lot of people, probably half of this room, uh, black or white, by the way, um, had read a Baldwin book that changed their life. Uh, that's how important Baldwin was and is. Uh, and I read Baldwin when I was 15 or 16, and, and I never stopped. Uh, it's, it's, it's somebody that was, I felt was always near me and helped me understand the, the complexity of this world, and not only here in the United States, but throughout the world. And, and it's like uh, somebody through, we, through whom you could understand uh, directly and go to the precise um, ex- uh, explanation that you need to, to build your own mind. Was there a particular uh, book, a particular work that, that spoke to you when you were 15 or 16, do you recall? All, all of them, uh, and particularly the essays. Uh, I, I personally love the essay uh, much more than the fictions. Um, as you, you, know, you, you said in the introduction, this is a film that was many years in the making. I, I think that's really clear um, in, in, in how um, intricately um, structured it is. You're using um, this unfinished manuscript as sort of the spine of the film, but as you people probably notice in the credits, you're using a lot of Baldwin's other writing as well. Um, I think very important too is um, The Devil Finds Work, um, his really okay. amazing uh, book of uh, on American movies. Um, can you you know talk a little bit about just this process yeah. of selection and synthesis? And, yeah. and but the the story behind that is that once I had this incredible access. Uh, to to all Baldwin, I, I knew that I had to find a way uh, to concentrate Baldwin in one film, is, is if it's even possible. But I knew that it was a one shot, and uh, it took me four years to find the right approach. And and I remember uh, Gloria Carifa uh, Smart, uh, Baldwin's uh, younger sister, one day gave me 
um, pages, and among them the letter that you see at the beginning and, and the notes uh, about remember this house. And, and she just told me, here, Raul, you will know what to do with them. And, and from that point, after I read it, I went through those pages and, and I knew this is the film. Uh, this book that he never was able to write because of all of this death. Uh, and, and later in his, uh, before he died, that he didn't have the, the, the strength to go through that and to go through that uh, suffering again, the, this journey, as he says. Uh, and I just decided somehow, well, he never wrote it, but somehow the book is here. It exists, it's throughout his whole work. So my job was to go everywhere in his books, his letters, his uh, um, personal uh, you know, notes, uh, and to find that book out of it. So, and that, was, uh, that became the film. Just one more question for me. Can you talk a little bit about the decision to use Baldwin's words against um, very contemporary images, images of the present day, very up-to-the-minute images um, in, in, in many cases, which of course gives you know, gives, I think it's one of the things that gives this film its a tremendous power and, and gives his words the ring of, of prophecy in a way. Well, that, that's the incredible part of all this is that if you take any books of Baldwin and start reading it, you're not reading about the past. You, you are reading about today. And it resonates as if it's, you know, uh, he's uh, reacting to current, uh, you know, news items. Uh, and at the same time, it's totally, uh, you know, universal, it's strong, it's, you know, these words were written uh, 30, 40 years ago, and they, they are stronger by the day, and that's, that's rare to have uh, an author with such an impact to, to, to its own history. Okay, I'm sure there are questions in the audience, we'd, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, if you raise your hand, and yes, sir. I think, do we have mic runners? Um, okay, we do have. Yeah. Uh, one thing, s certainly, you've managed to uh, find footage of Donald Trump actually apologizing for something. <laughs> I, I didn't know any such footage actually existed. So I salute you. We searched for years. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would imagine so. Also, um, forgive my ignorance in this in this matter but um, one thing that I, I'm I'm struggling with um, the I, I understand that the assassination of Malcolm uh, that there are rumors that it was um, uh, facilitated by by um, white people but um, for the most part uh, it, the, the people who have been um, blamed for it are uh, uh, associates of Elijah Muhammad. Am I correct about that, or well, I, I think the, the the details of this story is I think not so much relevant because that's that's one thing. The I, I recommend you the, the film of Ava DuVernay, Thirteenth, uh, which is exactly that's the I would say the theoretical part of that film. Uh, demonstrate it's 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 a plan. Nothing was innocent. Uh, and it's easy to get rid of the whole leadership of a movement by just creating the ambience. Uh, 
for any crazy person to get rid of them. And that's what I've been done constantly. It's, it's, it's easy to do. And by the way, those leaders were probably the most watched individual in that country. You know, never was the whole structure of power, the FBI, the CIA, all the structure were dedicated of surveillance of those people and infiltrate them and buying some of them and buying their whole entourage. So at one point when they decided, okay, uh, um, Martin Luther King or Malcolm X, uh, those two guys in particular, they are starting to talk about poverty. They, are, they start talking about class and not so much race because that's the big trick. They kept us busy on the race issue so that we can leave the, the more important issue, which is the, the wealth of this country, the inequalities, the economical inequalities. And this is the main question. So when these two leaders, as Baldwin says, were miles apart, became closer and closer together, that was the time where they became really dangerous. And the rest is just technicalities. Hi, uh, thank you for the movie, the documentary is very relevant to what is happening this day. And, um, and I just have to say that black lives matter because he's really, really, I mean, as a black man, he really, really matters to what is going on today. It's so relevant of what is going, you know, we're going through right now in this country. And um, when you start, you say that you started the movie, uh, you start thinking about it about 10 years ago? That's at the beginning. So you ever thought that this thing that happened, that it happened in Ferguson and Baltimore will be so relevant to this movie today? Well, of course not. Uh, and, and again, don't forget uh, the story with Ferguson and all those uh, protests happening everywhere in this country. They, they, are, they came out because we had footage of that. That's the difference. But it has been going on, on and on for years. Uh, we all still have in memory the, the assassination of, of not only demonstration, but the, all the leadership, as I said before, the Black Panther destroying all any leadership that uh, uh, started to, 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 to be created. So uh, it's nothing new. So those words were always, unfortunately, uh, true. And it's just becoming more and more present and urgent. And I do hope that uh, the, the next five years will be very important for this country in that oh. matter. Thank you so much, um, Mr. Peck, for your film this evening over here. <laughs> um, I really appreciated um, the narrative, um, and, I, and I really appreciate your response about the creation of the narrative and the use of um, Baldwin's text. And I just I wanted to know if you could um, comment on like I guess the experience of kind of feeling the power of of his words of the of that of that particular narrative and kind of similar to the sister's question um, in the context of where we're living and how we're living and what's happening right now um, I attended a screening the other day of author Jaffa's um, dreams are colder than death 
um, and he m mentioned um, the practice, the sense of the practice of refusal, um, the sense of lawmaking and lawbreaking that's very common in like black life in general. Um, and I just felt like that was really like a part of uh, the way that Baldwin was speaking about just like this practice of refusal against the mold of what America wants and you know perceives us at, to be. And so I'm just curious, like the experience, and especially you as like your sort of um, body of work from um, your body of work of the experience of being a part of a sense of refusing to be part of a mold. Yeah, it's a very complicated question. I'm not sure I understood everything, but I, I've. You know, it's, it's, uh, the only thing I could answer to you is go back to Baldwin. You know, Baldwin is key. Uh, you, you can't, uh, I, when I was uh, 16, 17, there were not so many books to refer to, to understand who you were and what your life was. Uh, and Baldwin was a major presence. And, and not only that, he was at the time uh, famous. Uh, he was everywhere in this Dick Cavett show. You know, he had almost an hour. Uh, at a time where there were, there were only three networks. So he was a major voice, he was one of the first, and everything else that came after him uh, was uh, born out of what he did. Uh, people like Toni Morrison have themselves written that uh, Baldwin uh, gave her a language. And he was a real pioneer on that. And the, the incredible thing is that his words are so powerful today, and, and it's beyond that. It, it's like he's telling us about today. You know, that he has a phrase when he said, when, when a nigger is quoting the, the, the Bible, uh, he's not quoting, he's telling you what, it, what happened to him today. And Baldwin is exactly that, still today. So, um I'm afraid we, we do have to wrap it up as we have another film um, about to start, but I want to thank you all for coming, and Raul, thank you so much for the film. Okay, and spread the words, please. Thank you. In addition to the close-up, we produce another podcast here at the Film Society. The Film Comment Podcast features weekly discussions with critics, programmers, and filmmakers about the issues, trends, and topics relevant to the serious film lover. At the Sundance Film Festival this past weekend, film comment editor Nicholas Rapold led a discussion about the best films people are seeing. To hear the entire discussion, subscribe to the Film Comment Podcast on iTunes or head over to filmcomment.com. Let's go now to an excerpt from their conversation. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. This week we're coming live to you from the Sundance Film Festival in lovely Park City, Utah. This is, as you might guess, the Critics Podcast where we go over some films we've seen in the beginning of the festival. It's not going to be comprehensive because we're pretty early in the festival, so you know you probably won't hear about some movies that you might be curious about. But uh, yeah, without further ado, I'd like to go around and have each critic introduce themselves. Nick Pinkerton, uh, itinerant critic, and uh, <laughs> I did the cover story on uh, the most recent film comment, a uh, little palaver with Martin Scorsese. I'm Paula Mejia. Uh, this is my first time on the Film Comment podcast. Thank you for having me. I've written for Film Comment in the past, but I'm here at Sundance freelancing for way too many publications. <laughs> uh, I'm Ashley Clark. 
probably on the film comment podcast too often. <laughs> we, we've been meaning to talk to you about that. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I'm a regular contributor to film comment. I also had a palaver with Raoul Peck, director of the fantastic I Am Not Your Negro, uh, in the new issue of film comment. And I'm very glad to be here today. Raoul Peck, who I should mention, recently sent an email complimenting us on the podcast you just did. Maybe you already heard about that. Fantastic. So, um, so shot in the arm. All right, well, without further ado, um, I guess the interesting thing about this, about, I don't know, me running this, is that this is my first time at Sundance. So uh, I'm a newbie, a Tyro. Uh, <laughs> and so the problem with that is I don't have the same perspective. That's why I, you know, I'm kind of relying on other people to fill in the blanks here. Um, but I have seen a few films, but I also have general observations. But I thought I'd hear from our critics present about their just general take so far on it and, and whether, you know, what, how many times you've been here. If, I mean, I'm also busting my cherry, as you know. <laughs> so Likewise, I'm being touched for the first time, the very first time, <laughs> uh, as, as we speak. Wow, guys, this is my third Sundance. <laughs> well, the Alpine atmosphere is lovely, invigorating. I feel I feel like I'm in a you know German mountain film, <laughs> Dr. Arnold Funk film. My lungs expanding. Film-wise, it's been as they say a mixed bag. Mixed bag, yes. Uh, for me, I've been mostly seeing documentaries. Um, I've seen a lot more of the narrative features coming up this week, but most of the buzz that I've been hearing has been about. Um, a lot of these narrative features. So it's been interesting kind of being on the other side of the coin in that way. So, yeah. Yeah, Paula and I have just rushed here from, from a screening of Mudbound by Dee Rees this morning, which is one of the most talked about films here. It points to kind of a wider issue about festival coverage. It's a film that contains so much. It's a kind of World War II era story about um, the intersection of a family of sharecroppers and a landowner who comes to live on their land with his family and all the tensions that kind of spark off and those relationships interpersonal and it it goes into a lot of micro and macro detail and it's precisely the kind of film that you would not want to run up a giant hill and then <laughs> sit and try and kind of um, expound upon eloquently i could um, not agree more yeah. <laughs> i'm still catching my breath in short uh, I, I liked it very much and i think it's a, a leap for, for dries I, I enjoyed pariah very much I thought Bessie was, was, was a great work of art as well, but this is so expansive and contains so much that um, I recommend it, in short. Yeah. Well, that, let's, that's let's my equivalent of, a, of a, an Insta tweet, you know. Yeah. It's great. Can't well, wait to see what she does next. But it, it's, it's really good, and I look forward to a lot of the conversations that will happen around it, particularly, you know, given what's happening in the country right now. I couldn't agree more. Um, I loved Pariah, but I thought that this was so extraordinarily better. Um, and such a leap for her as a filmmaker. I thought it was incredible. Um, it was complex and profound, and I, f I felt like I was gripping the seat along with everyone else next to me, and we were kind of fighting for space on the armrest to do that. Um, and having those kinds of experiences are really special, I think, at Sundance. So, What's notable for me about the film is it's profoundly empathetic. Mm. Um, so in films that deal with, with race and racism, it's often from whatever perspective you're looking at, at it from, it's quite easy to draw, no, no pun intended, you know, black and white lines. This film, there's many shades to it, and every character 
is feels fully fleshed out and, and it's very well acted actors i was talking to nick pinkerton beforehand about some of the the casting when i when i read down the uh, the list and saw Kerry mulligan garrett headland actors i've not necessarily been convinced by before but they really bring something to it mary j blige is also in the film and gives a wonderful performance which is ironic considering she'd promised no more drama <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that should wrap things up. <laughs> and we're done here. <laughs> I can't really follow up that incredible pun. I'm just a little flabbergasted. Um, yeah, I, I thought the the cast was tremendous as well. And I think um, what you said about it being profoundly empathetic is really true. I think that, you know, so often, I, something that I've been thinking about a lot in seeing these documentaries and um especially having seen Mudbound just now, is thinking about um, what we learn uh, from this time in history and how history is usually told from the side of the victors and being able to see people coming from both sides of their different resentments and the kind of past that they lived through, I think was tremendous. And I think if I had one criticism, um, obviously I'm still pondering it and still thinking about it, but I think it was a kind of an over-reliance on, on voiceover, did quite a lot of lifting which almost took away from the, the gifts that Dee has as a visual storyteller. I think there was a kind of a multi-stranded five or six people get to do voiceover narration. Yeah, and I found it was um, needlessly portentous at times. The images and the, the themes carried enough weight without needing to, you know, maybe that's a confidence thing, I don't know, but I didn't feel that there needed to be quite so much voiceover. Ironic, because I ramble on. No, I, I, f I felt the same way. I thought that it, it hit you over the head a little bit. It could have done without the voiceover at all. I think um, the acting was so strong and yeah. everything else was running through it. So Well, there was no divergence between the voiceover and the image. Mm -hmm. I think when voiceover is used interestingly, it's I think of like Barry Lyndon, Michael Horden doing that incredible dry voiceover, which really brings something to... It forces you to kind of have a dialogue with the image. With this, it was like a reification of the image. There was nothing in the voiceover that wasn't happening mm. on screen, which threw me a little. But a minor criticism overall. I I know I I hear you on on the on the uh, I don't know surfeit of voiceover. I I liked I liked the voiceover because I liked the language of it, especially because one recurring theme for me here is that a lot of the dialogue as written in the films at Sundance is. Like you'll be trucking along all right for a while and then someone will just, you know, bust out with a howler of a line. It's like, I guess you didn't want to just fine tune that a little, you know, it's just, you know, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll come up with some examples as, as we get along. So in a way it was like, oh, sure. I'd, I like to have the literary language here as, 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 a, as you know, a little change. But it, yeah, it, it was often. It's based on a novel too. And it novel, does have yeah, a... It's coming from a novel. Yeah. Get that infusion um, from, from there. Um, had any of you read the novel? I have not. Not I. Me neither. We can, we can cut that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just curious. Um, Mr. Pinkerton, you have a... Well, I've, uh, I think I've got a good dozen movies under my belt. Some of which, you know, there are bits that I like here and there. As you know, I have uh, a great deal of fondness for Dustin Deffa's uh, Person to Person. But I think the thing that I have the most unreserved enthusiasm about is actually a piece that I encountered in uh, the VR palace, so-called, which looks suspiciously like a tent and not a palace, <laughs> um, which is a piece that takes about five, six minutes to get through if you're just trucking straight through it by a woman called Rachel Rawson, who's a 
painter and also a sort of new media artist uh, called The Sky is a Gap. And the sort of jumping off point from it is the conclusion of Michelangelo Antonioni's Zabriskie Point, which for those of you who don't know the movie is this fantastic sort of grand finale where you just see commercial goods exploding in sensuous slow motion. A bookshelf, a uh, loaf of Wonder Bread, uh, so on and so forth. And what uh, she has done with this is you slap on your VR goggles, a novel experience to me, and you're able to explore these uh, landscapes that are in the midst of explosion. But as you move about, the location of your body inside of this chamber determines what direction the explosion is moving in. So it explodes or implodes depending on where you are. Moreover, there are these little pockets of sound buried throughout the area where when you hit them, your body almost acts like a stylus on a record player. So you can almost sort of scratch back and forth. And it was entirely unlike anything that I have encountered before. The thing that it put me most in mind of is a piece that I ran across at uh, the Whitney uh, in their Dreamlands show a couple months ago. Alexander McCall's line describing a cone, I think it is, called where it's just a space that I could have spent an infinitely lengthy amount of time in. And it was also interesting in that it was completely outside of what you know the other pieces that were available in the VR palace, which are interesting in their own right, but I don't think necessarily successful as standalone art pieces or narrative art pieces. You can see things sort of being worked out and all of that is very interesting. It's interesting to see this form at the zoetrope stage, uh, to see it emerging from the primordial muck. It still felt very primordial <laughs> to me, a lot of it, um, to see these sort of issues of how to narrativize an open space, how to edit without editing, uh, using sonic cues, so on and so forth. All of which is to say the Rachel Rawson piece is the one thing that I found absolutely you know, jaw-dropping. I mean, what's interesting is that, it, is that it's you know a new or new medium, but it's still taking off a film as its jumping point. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's a piece, I believe, called Dear Angela, which is about a 15-minute narrative piece, which is based around a young woman addressing letters to her deceased mother, who is a fictional movie star. The vernacular of film is very much in use in, in these pieces. And that's the case with The Sky is a Gap as well. I mean, but it also seems to be, you know, it's free of free of narrative. It's doing something that I, I, you know, I, I can't see it working in any other, any other context, in any other medium. Uh, whereas everything else that I've encountered thus far does seem heavily indebted to the sort of toolkit of motion pictures. Yeah. Yeah, and aspects of that toolkit, it's, I, I don't want to be the one who's griping here, but maybe that'll be my role. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, that there have been aspects that just sort of recur, like uh, the use of scores in some of the movies I've been seeing has been uh, just a little 
self enamored uh, at, at times. Uh, you know, it's, did you see Thoroughbred? You read my mind. <laughs> uh, yes, I did. Just this morning, in yeah. fact. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I was just was just ladling it on. It was like they they, they bought a whole truck of score, uh, you know, like a pickup truck full of score, and didn't want to waste a single grain of it. Couple uh, couple truckloads of cinematography. <laughs> yes, and I, you know, it's it's fairly interesting score. Um, uh, although, I in, in a way, I felt like it was a movie I could have seen twenty years ago. So, know. what's this film about? This Thor is Thoroughbred. Oh, thank you. Yes, Thoroughbred, um, directed by Corey Finley, and it's a film uh, about two friends uh, or grade school friends, and um, one of them is, I guess depressive or dissociative almost and the other is in, in a rich family i guess they're both they're rich. both very they're wealthy. both very wealthy it's set in this like in manorial connecticut, connecticut. Yeah. yeah and at first you know they're sparring circling each other for for a while and and um you know trying like i don't know heathers-esque lines out on each other and then they things turn even darker than they already are and um, all throughout, there's a lot of music. It's these sort of dramatic, I don't know, what are it's they? Sort kettle? of tintinnabulation of yeah. kettle drums and percussion kitchen, section. In, kitchen yeah. implements being rattled around. Yeah, a lot of that. Just like a percussion section, just like set loose. Or, or I felt more like if, you know, an orchestra when it's tuning up, it's like you just left the mic on for the whole time. Um, and, and a lot of it's very calibrated, but a lot of it just felt just... Um, anxious. Whenever there's a lot of score like that, it kind of feels like there's a lack of confidence in the material. Um, uh, and one other particular gripe I have is when you this this kind of hackneyed convention of that about cuts. When you're making a dramatic cut, you have the ramp up to to like the eardrum, you know, piercing thing, and then you have the cut, which takes away from the cut. You know, it's like the, that cuts are dramatic. You know, cuts are like a basic building block. So uh, that's just frustrating because it's like an anxiety about something that's so basic to, to how movies are put together. I mean, the the movie you could have seen twenty years ago, comment. I I definitely had that same feeling as well. I mean, as rough contemporaries who both sort of lived through the deliciously dark cycle of the middle nineteen nineties, I have a very limited patience for that mode. Yeah, you know, people behaving badly. Uh, so Ashley and I shouldn't go see it. <laughs> so in short, drop everything and see this film. Oh, okay. Run like a thoroughbred to thoroughbred. All right then. <laughs> uh, no, no, but uh, no. Seriously though, it's 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 entertaining. It's very entertaining to watch, and and they have you know a, a whatever sort of deliciously demonic interplay between uh, these the, the two actresses who are who are strong. Although I have to say a little one note a bit in terms of the but the characters are kind of like that. I was actually feeling a bit misty-eyed about Anton Yelchin, mm. who's in it, who plays a... How would you describe him? He's like one of those guys who hangs out in the high school parking lot six years after high school <laughs> and is like selling ditch weed to everybody and playing grab ass with the girls. That's basically what he's doing. Yeah, and then he takes that, and, but he, he, and he just, I don't know, he just fleshes it out so much and takes every little line... And that it's just like I almost want to follow this guy on his sad, sad path. Um, that that's happened. Every time he's there, I, you know, he's supposed to be the kind of he's supposed to be a one joke guy, mm -hmm. but he's he he uses it with so much like warmth and just little pauses and everything. So that was a you know R.I.P. Uh, moment for me. 
But perhaps we should move on to films that anyone want to jump in with another title. Well, might be a good time to talk about a film with absolutely no score, um, which was a film called Motherland, which is a documentary set in Manila in the Philippines, set in a kind of maternity hospital. Um, and it's a an inc incredible... Uh, it's directed by Ramona Diaz, a kind of prolific documentary filmmaker. Um, and I believe it went through many, many cuts and m many versions to get it just right. And it's a kind of... 90-minute observational documentary following what happens on this ward, um, which includes babies getting lost, um, actually get it, like being mixed up with others, babies being lost, babies being born. It doesn't ladle on, in, on any context. Underlying it all is that this is a intensely Catholic country where birth control is basically non-existent, so that context is underpinning the film. But it's very... Um, very moving. It really stayed with me. Um, I think it's a real testament to the access, the trust that the, that the filmmaker was able to, to build up with with her subjects. I don't really like that word, but but with with the people she focuses on, and, and and narratives come out of it, but they feel very organic, not forced in the reality TV model, where you look at someone and you think, oh, that's you know the, the music swells and that's who we're going to follow. I found it very moving and very understated. So I, I wasn't really going to talk about it, but when you talked about the um, Tintinabulation, did you say? Tintinabulation. What a word. <laughs> your, your kettle drums had my, my ears ringing. My and, um, tragic kettle drums. The tragic kettle drums. Uh, and I thought that the minimalism of this film was remarkable. Uh, and it was, it was nice to be able to take some time to, to think about the film before, before talking about it. You made me want to see it. Thanks. And then, Paula, you saw Whose Streets, if I'm right. That's yes, a, a I did. very notable um, documentary. So Whose Streets is a documentary about um, not so much the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, but basically what happened after that. And they follow a couple of people who are very involved in the Black Lives Matter movement, people who have been living in Ferguson for years, people who lived um, on the same street as Michael Brown, where he was shot. And I had a pretty visceral reaction to this film. I mean, two years ago, when that happened, I was a national reporter sitting in a newsroom, scrambling with everyone, trying to figure out how to cover this. And it, it was it was heavy, um, but I think it was important. And I think to see a documentary that's been, it's still very prescient, and it's been going on in real time. Um, it's not something that has been removed from history for a while. I think that people are still processing a lot of that, especially given the political climate right now. Uh, so it was pretty incredible. I'm really keen to see it. Could you talk a bit just about the form of it, like how how the, this kind of this story is presented in terms of you know how it's framed? Or does it use talking heads? Does it? Uh, not so much talking heads. Um, so it's divided into five parts, and it's as the movement is sort of ramping up. <laughs> Uh, it starts with um, Michael Brown's shooting, but that takes up maybe two minutes of the film. It's very brief. They don't really dwell on it. Uh, they dwell on the aftermath of what happened as much as his parents and the people in the town and then moving through when all the reporters come to town and when they focus on the looting of this one store and there's are so many other stories that are going on simultaneously. And... They focus on a couple of people, um, someone who's very heavily involved in community organizing, someone who is raising their child to be an activist, and she gets arrested in the film, and um, seeing 
the police report and what they cited her for is pretty something else. Um, but I will say my criticism of it is that it is very, it is a little heavy handed on the sides of the act of it. I mean, obviously like that's where the focus was and that's what this documentary is about, but they, they don't interview anyone in law enforcement. They have one interview with Darren Wilson and it's kind of placed in this moment and you're like, Oh, this guy. Like, <laughs> and so, um, you know, and that's how I think the film was meant to be, but I think that it could have benefited from a little bit more. Balance. I think it's a shame when films don't give people the opportunity to, to hang themselves. Um, I'm thinking of Spike Lee doing Four Little Girls, when he, um, which is about the 16th Street bombing in Alabama, mm. and he interviews at length George Wallace, former governor of Alabama, and it's just an incredible thing to, to witness this guy mm. talking himself into knots and circles, and it gives the film so much weight. Right. To actually bring in alternate voices. No, for sure. Uh, and not to, I don't mean to switch subjects, but when something really benefits from that balance, I think that it can be very powerful. Like I saw Novitiate. Um, I don't know if anyone has seen that here. So Novitiate is this film that was made by uh, Maggie Betts. And in it, a 17-year-old girl named Kathleen decides to become a nun and excuse me um her mother is more of the rebellious one she's like what are you doing you're throwing your life away i can't believe this um and she goes to join a very strict convent and so the process that nuns go through before they take their vows it's very rigorous and very much about self-realizations and um takes a lot of discipline and it was pretty fascinating to see because the film despite the subject matter it doesn't present it in a positive or a negative light. It's incredibly neutral. And I say this as someone who grew up Catholic and is very much lapsed and I feel I have my own hangups about that. And I came out of it feeling like it was very fair in terms of the representation there. And it really left people the ability to make their own decision there. So I was pretty impressed with that. Well, it almost shows a lack of confidence in your polemic thrust when you don't allow some other mm. you know, representation because i mean the example that you give spike lee has full confidence that he can let george wallace pop off as much as he wants mm. and it's not going to in any way shape or form slacken or slow down the polemical drive of what he's doing uh it's not second guessing the approach rather it is a complete confidence in the approach that you can let the other side have their say i think also of uh ponte ponte corvo's battle of algiers where you have the wonderful monologue by the uh sort of chief of the paratroopers who in the moment that he's speaking everything that he says is completely justifiable completely sound from where he's coming from but it in no way shape or form slows down the velocity of the film it's a sign of confidence in your viewpoint rather than weakness i think which somehow brings me a bit back to to mudbound even though it's a fiction feature and we've been talking about documentary just dramatic way in which it's it draws parallels but also juxtaposes the stories of the two families and for me, it had one of the most exciting sequences. I'm not even sure if it was successful, but it was exciting because it was pushing things so much. Just the, the montage, I guess there are a series of montages where they're cutting between wildly disparate times and places of, you know, battlefield and 
you know, love making. <laughs> I mean, it's mixing it all together. But, uh, and it's, it's almost like you're, you're watching some update of like a, you know, Griffith intercutting. Um, and I, I yeah, I loved, I loved kind of seeing the directorial hand there. Um, the whole movie was just so, I don't know, gratifyingly am- ambitious and, and, and so coherent stylistically as well, yeah. mm-hmm. despite the, 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 the various, you know, places in the world to which it travels. Some of the, some of the sound bridges and match cuts are oh, really yeah. thr- like thrilling, like, like breathtaking yeah. moments from, yeah. from a fighter pilot to suddenly you're in a shack somewhere in, in Mississippi. Yeah. Or and the carburetor praying. when he falls on the ground, yes. you know, yeah. and thinking that it's a bullet and it's just a car. Like yeah. I jumped like halfway out of my seat yeah. during yeah. that scene. And it's, see, there's something, I'm kind of imagining the film in the hands of another, a, a different filmmaker and, and how like Lily Daniels, for example, you know, and how, how different a film it would have been, you know, how, it seems so so restrained yet ambitious it's hard to hard to convey that but it's it's in the stylistic unity of the film where there's obviously so much explosive and provocative content thematic material but yet the way it's marshaled is the sign of such a confident filmmaker we're talking about confidence mm. apart from as i mentioned before the the perhaps overuse of voiceover yeah. Otherwise, it, it holds together really beautifully. Yeah. I mean, it's a sort of film where you would, might expect people to talk about it as, as an epic, you know, epic canvas or, or something, but that just feels false when you hold it up to what, what you're actually watching. Yeah, because I think that epic has or implies some kind of sensationalism, and there was no sensationalism in Unbound at all. Yeah. It's a tough movie. Yeah. It's, it's graphically violent, and it doesn't hold back on racism in action mm. um and it's it's very powerful for that for that honesty and and rawness well not just that but how difficult it is to live as a farmer and a sharecropper no less yeah like, like a really powerful evocation of just hard times for mm. everybody for the the farmer who's kind of emasculated by his by his father there was kind of less there was elements of, of monster's ball to it in terms mm. of that father-son relationship not quite as lurid um but but it's it's a very kind of compelling portrait of masculinity uh, in crisis which is a perennial thing and yeah uh, just again i look forward to thinking more about it yeah and i just also like the time particular time period of like the 30s and 40s that, that it's that it's in you know somehow in between a lot of the you know epics that that often get covered in film whether it's civil rights or slavery era um, it reminded me of Strange Victory too. I don't know if you, if anyone here is. Oh yeah, I yeah. love Strange Victory. In yeah. terms of some of the, the, the cross cutting and the the, the the ambition of it. Yeah, Strange Victory, this great Leo Hurwitz documentary, this real wonderful bummer of a documentary <laughs> of for post-war America, where you know I I, I forget of exactly what his assignment was. But it, it, it probably wasn't to actually chronicle the state of race relations at the time, um, which is basically what he does. And, and um, it's just, yeah, very clear eyed about the fact that the war was won, but, you know, that didn't suddenly fix everything up. And that's vividly portrayed in, in Mudbound as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the black soldier who comes back to America having been a hero abroad. Yeah. And then is back right at the bottom of the ladder when he gets home. And that, that provides the narrative engine for much of the film's mm. second half. To hear the entire discussion, subscribe to the Film Comment podcast on iTunes or head over to filmcomment.com. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. 
Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.